You're listening to the Cases That Made a Difference show. Welcome, everyone. This is Donna Jones, President and Director of Associate and Client Experience here at Advocate Capital. In this episode of Cases That Made a Difference, we talk with Brian McAllister, attorney and founder of the McAllister Law Firm. Brian is handling a case about addressing fatal errors in the 911 system and how he is attempting to make a difference in resolving these issues. If you have a topic you want to hear more about, email us at podcasts at advocatecapital.com. Let's get to the show. Brian McAllister is the founder and owner of the McAllister Law Firm PC. Since founding the firm in 1996, Brian has dedicated his professional life to the representation of individuals and families in cases involving catastrophic injury or death, resulting from things like dangerous products, tractor-trailer crashes, automobile accidents, and medical malpractice. He is a graduate of the prestigious Trial Lawyers College, founded by famed plaintiff lawyer Jerry Spence. Brian is currently a member of the Association of Trial Lawyers of America and the Kansas City Metropolitan Bar Association. He has three adult children, and his youngest is preparing for law school as we speak. Welcome, Brian, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Donna. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for asking me to be here. Fantastic. Well, just a general overview and my very cursory understanding of the case that we're here to discuss today sounds a little bit like this. The United States created the 911 system to be a universal emergency number for all citizens to seek emergency assistance. Our 911 program covers approximately 96% of the United States. But what happens when you call 911 and there's a delay due to a system or even a human error? Brian McAllister represents a family whose eight-year-old son called 911 when his mother collapsed and fell to the floor, becoming unresponsive. She was a healthy 40-year-old wife and mother of two children and worked as a nurse at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. Brian, with that as a backdrop, if you would please introduce us to your clients, what happened to their family member, and how the first responders handled that situation. I sure will. Thank you, Donna. Um, You know, I'm a I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, like most of your clients, Donna, uh, if not all. And it's an honor uh, and a real pleasure for me to be able to represent families, in particular families uh, who have had a tragic event in their life that has taken someone that they love from the planet and from the family. And in this case, I represent the husband of Catherine McClelland, uh, who died. Uh, And I also represent not only Frank, the husband, but also Frank and Catherine's two young children who I will not name because they are juveniles and uh, and their information is protected. Um, And really what happened 
to Catherine that made her die is shocking because, uh, as you mentioned, in the United States, there is a universal call for help called 911. Uh, as parents, we teach our children about 911. And in fact, Catherine and Frank McClelland had, had taught their children when something bad happens, call 911. And it's shocking when you call that number and you get the response that this young man got having witnessed his mother literally falling face first onto the hallway floor of their small home in Prairie Village, Kansas. Um, Catherine was not feeling well that, this, that morning. She called her sister to let her know she was not feeling well and to please meet her at the Shawnee Mission Medical Center uh, where she was going to take her two children with her and meet her sister so that she could care for the children. And she wanted to do this because she didn't want to alarm her kids. But um, she hung up the phone with her sister after talking for about five minutes. Um, and then her son remembers hearing a thud. And he came out and found his mother lying on the ground. And so that you can appreciate exactly what happened, I'm going to play for your audience a, a copy uh, of the actual recording from the 911 conversation. And I'm going to play about one minute to give you a flavor for what information 911 had within one minute, but then failed to respond. Kansas City 911, call figure 102. Okay, so, I'm sorry, I'm only a child with my little sister, and my mom's lying on the ground, and my dad's out of town. Okay, how old are you? Eight and a half. Okay, is your mom awake? Um, Honey, is your mom awake? No, she she's not standing up. And, okay. And, and I, and I... And she's rolled over, and uh, she, she fell on a, a front. And okay, honey, I'm going to get you over to ambulance. Stay on the line, okay? Do you know your address? Um, let me just go outside. I live in Prairie Village, Belinder Avenue. You live on what? Prairie Village, Belinder Avenue. Okay, okay, hold and on. Go ahead. My house number is... Nine three four seven. Nine three four seven. I mean seven three four seven. Seven three four seven. Okay, yes. I'm gonna go ahead and get you over to ambulance. Stay on the line, okay? Don't hang up. Okay. So I stopped the re the recording of the nine one one call by Catherine's eight year old son, and within one minute and seventeen seconds, that call taker had every piece of information that she needed to send an ambulance. She knew that this young boy's mother had fallen. She was unresponsive. She knew that he lived in Prairie Village on Belinder Avenue, and that's an important piece of information 
in the Kansas City metropolitan area because that is not in the jurisdiction of where the call center was. And then at one minute and six seconds, he actually gave her the house number, 7347, of his house. He had gone outside and read it right off the front of the house. What happened, though, is instead of the call taker doing what she was trained to do, and instead of her doing what she had promised this little boy she would do, instead of getting an ambulance to him, she instead called the Kansas City, Missouri Fire Department. And for the next 13 minutes, these two or three call takers did not believe what this young child was telling them, did not send an ambulance, and it took 16 minutes to get one first responder to Catherine's side. And that's important because within five minutes, the science tells us brain cells begin to die. And the call takers knew this. They've admitted this in depositions, that they knew that people could die if they did not send someone immediately to give help to people who are down. This is why we have defibrillators in police cars. This is why there has been a national movement for the past decade to put defibrillators at baseball fields and football fields so that when people go down, their heart can be started again and they don't die. But in Catherine's case, it was too little, too late, and 16 minutes in the call, police got there shortly after the ambulance got there. And even though they were able to get her heart started again, within that 16 to 17 minute window, with one shock, with one shock, within just, with just one shock, Donna, they were able to get Catherine's heart started again, but her brain had died. And the family had to make the very difficult decision several days later that they had to disconnect Catherine from life support and she passed away. Wow. It's wow is the only word I know to use. Um, Brian, I guess if you would please explain why these errors occurred and in more detail, if you could please, about how that 911 call should have been properly received and handled. So in in Kansas City, uh, like a lot of metropolitan areas, uh, there's a uh, an imaginary, if you will, an imaginary line that runs through the metropolitan area. It happens to be a state line. And so there are jurisdictions involved uh, depending on which side of the state line you are on. Uh, in, in our case in Kansas City, it's the difference between Missouri or Kansas. We have one metropolitan area that we call Kansas City, but in reality there are 10, 12, 15, 20 municipalities within the Kansas City metropolitan area. And so what should have happened when the cell phone tower pinged Missouri call center for the call, once the call taker knew that this young boy was in Prairie Village, Belinder Avenue, she was trained to know that is Kansas and that Missouri responders cannot respond. She knew this. And instead 
of immediately transferring that call, literally with the touch of her screen, she made the conscious decision to call the Kansas City, Missouri Fire Department, where there was another delay of many, many, many valuable, critical minutes for Catherine's life. And so instead of sending an ambulance within one minute and six seconds from the proper jurisdiction with the touch of a computer monitor, she did not believe this young boy because she had a piece of technology available to her called Geolinks. And Geolinks was telling her a different address on the computer. It was still an address in Prairie Village. And as it turns out, when you look at a map, it was only nine houses down the street from this young boy's house. But instead, she got Kansas City, Missouri Fire Department on the phone, delayed the call even more. And it wasn't until a supervisor came on duty at the Kansas City Fire Department and realized what was going on that an ambulance was sent almost 13 minutes into the call. And if it hadn't been for that supervisor realizing what happened, Catherine's heart wouldn't have even been started again. So I guess changing gears just a little bit, Brian, from a a medical perspective, talk to us a little bit about how critical those 13 minutes that the 911 operators delayed getting help to your client and, and what would the likelihood of her survival perhaps have been if the responders had been able to get there and give the help that was needed? There are a number of knowns, known factors that we do have. We've done about 30 depositions in this case so far. And what we know is that it took between three to six minutes for the Johnson County, Kansas first responders to get to the house. So we know that had the call been properly transferred to the right jurisdiction in Kansas, that a first responder would have been at Catherine's side administering a shock from a defibrillator within six to eight minutes. And we also know from our experts in the case, and we have about a half dozen experts hired in the case. We know from our experts because they've done scientific studies and literature has been written about this fact. And that is this, for someone as young as Catherine, age 40, with virtually no other medical conditions whatsoever other than a thyroid disorder uh, that had been cured, she was not obese she was a non-smoker, she did not have diabetes, she did not have cancer, nothing. We know that the science tells us that a person in her age category, if they are given help within 10 minutes of the collapse, that she would have survived, not only survived, but with virtually no neurologic consequences, meaning no brain damage, virtually no brain damage, if that help had gotten there in 10 minutes. So when we hear in society, when we hear that the phrase time is tissue, 
or we hear that time is of the essence when it comes to our emergency responders. That is a very real thing. And the call takers are trained that that is a very real thing. In our case, Donna, we have admissions from the call takers that they knew that time was of the essence and that people's lives depended on them getting help to those people within a very short period of time. They know these things. The young boy didn't know these things. All he knew was what his mother and father taught him. When something bad happens, you call 911. But these call takers knew, and yet not one minute, not two minutes, not five minutes, not 10 minutes. It took them 13 minutes before a supervisor, overhearing what was going on, decided that something needed to happen and needed to happen right now. And if it weren't for that supervisor, her name is Nicole, Catherine wouldn't have even even survived from a heart perspective for the three days or four days that she did. Medically, you asked me from a medical perspective how critical were those 13 minutes. Uh, It's very real. And if you don't get help to someone that has collapsed on a baseball field or a football field or in a place of, of public accommodation within five to 10 minutes, their brain cells could die and they might not survive and might be brain dead by the time help does come. And that's what happened to Catherine. You know, if I'm that call taker and I hear that it's an eight and a half year old boy and his mother has collapsed and is on the floor, like from my simple way of thinking, I would have given that call even more priority because you know, it, it, a child who had the wherewithal and the the good sense to do what his parents had taught him to do and call nine one one, and yet and still, you alluded earlier to the fact that this woman apparently didn't believe him. Is that your understanding through the discovery process? Well, you know, as happens in cases uh, when you represent families like this, there's. There's a part of the trial lawyer, me, there's a part of me that's left scratching my head even after they hear an explanation from the people that you're accusing. And I have to tell you, I'm still left scratching my head why their defense is I didn't believe him. Because in this case, it doesn't matter. That's why they have computerized backup systems like Geolinks. I told you about the Geolinks system that they had in place, the Geolinks pinpointed his location nine houses down the street in the same little municipality called Prairie Village, Kansas. She would have known from the Geolinks that this was outside the Missouri jurisdictions and she could not send Missouri help. She knew where he was and all she had to do, whether it was listening and believing what he told her from reading off the number on his house or looking at the Geolinks, She knew that a Johnson County ambulance needed to respond to that call, not Missouri. Yet she chose to call the Kansas City, Missouri Fire Department instead of touching the button on her touch screen. So I agree with you, Donna, and I really thank you for telling me your perspective about, uh, you know, paying more attention when it's a child caller. I hadn't really given that a whole lot of thought, but you're right. With a child caller, maybe you should pay even more attention than with an adult caller. I mean, he was a champ. That young boy was a champ on the phone. 
He did everything his mother and father taught him and then some. He was calm, he was collected, and he was clear. And they still didn't send help. Well, and again, I think it's even more impressive when he knew he wasn't sure about the house number, he had the common sense to walk outside and look to make sure that he got it right. And so again, I I agree with you, Brian. I I know a lot of adults that wouldn't have done as well in that situation as this eight-year-old boy did. I agree with you, me included, me included. Well, my notes also indicate, Brian, that um, you you filed a petition in 2020 to, to help address these errors and talk a little bit about that and how you hope it will benefit all of us who might one day have to use the 911 system. Well, I think that is uh, at least in part answered by the purpose of our civil justice system, isn't it? I mean, one of the beauties of our civil justice system, and it's the only system like it in the world, is that people are held to account for the wrongs that they commit. And a jury of 12 ordinary citizens someday is going to be sitting in a courtroom in March or April of next year and deciding whether or not these folks should be held to account for Catherine's death and should be held to account for the harms and the losses and the devastation that the loss of Catherine means to them. I mean, Frank is one thing. He's an adult. And... um, and not to diminish his loss, because it is tremendous uh, to lose someone the way he did. And of course, naturally, because he was out of town on a, on a job assignment, even though he couldn't do anything about it, he has survivor's guilt. Um, but, you know, Frank's an adult, and, and he might be able to be married again in the future. I don't know what the future holds for him. But for these children, these children only have one mother and she's gone forever. And so their, their damages are enormous. And so I would say that hopefully one of the things that's going to come out of this lawsuit is that these folks will be held to account in our civil justice system. And that in and of itself will teach these folks that perhaps they need to retrain people They need to listen to random calls from time to time to make sure that their call takers are handling calls appropriately. And so it's my hope that those kinds of changes will happen. Well, it's it's a heartbreaking case. Like you said, um, you know, this family has has lost a wife and for for two young children to lose their mother, the loss just feels immeasurable. And so, Brian, thank you for everything that you're doing to help this family get justice. And we hope that maybe um, in 2024, we'll have a a follow-up episode and you'll be able to tell us um, what the jury did for this family. And, you know, nothing can bring her back. But at least they're, like you said, our our system provides a way to ensure that these children are taken care of, that they have an opportunity to go to college and all those types of things. And so thank you for, for everything that you're doing on their behalf. Very welcome. And thank you. Thank you for saying so. 
And so, Brian, if we have uh, listeners on the podcast today that maybe have a similar case, or if we have another family that, that's maybe had a similar encounter that would want to consult with you since you've clearly developed an expertise in this area, um, what might be the best way for someone to get in touch with you for consultation or representation? We do a lot of work with attorneys across the country, uh, and uh, your folks are, uh, should feel free to contact us uh, through our website, www.mcallisterlawfirm.com. That's M-C-C-A-L-L-I-S-T-E-R lawfirm.com, or by phone, 816-931-2229. We'd be happy to help. Fantastic. Well, um, I guess the B side of my thank you today, Brian, is um, not, not only are I know you're working hard to, to get justice for this very deserving family, but by going the extra mile and trying to make a difference in the 911 system overall, um, you're working to, to make everyone's world a safer and better place. And so thank you for that. And we look forward to hearing um, about your results next year. Thank you, Donna. Thanks again for joining us today. This podcast was brought to you by Advocate Capital, purveyors of the Advotrack Case Expense Funding Service. Advocate Capital is a team of Seventh Amendment champions who have been serving plaintiff law firms nationwide since 1999. Through a partnership with Pinnacle Financial Partners, Advocate can also assist with all of your firm's banking needs. And Advocate's AdvoCap Insurance Agency serves the insurance needs of plaintiff law firms exclusively. Banking products are offered by Pinnacle Bank, a Tennessee bank, member FDIC. Insurance products are not deposits, not insured by the FDIC or any other government agency, nor are they guaranteed by Pinnacle Bank. For more information, visit AdvocateCapital.com.